Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival podcast. We hope you enjoy this event, which was recorded live at the 2020 Book Festival. Good evening and welcome to this virtual version of the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Apparently there's over a thousand of you out there everywhere already who've tuned in to hear Maggie O'Farrell and I'm sure you're going to be delighted by what you hear. My name is Stuart Kelly, I'm a writer and reviewer and I reviewed Hamnet, Maggie's eighth novel. It's an astonishing work which reimagines Shakespeare's son Hamnet and the possible connections between that play and the death of his son. Maggie, it's a really bold book. Before we hear from it, when did the idea from this begin? Well, it's funny. I mean, I first heard about the existence of the boy Hamnet when I was, it was probably about 30 years ago. It's when I was studying the play Hamnet for my Scottish hires. So I would have been 16. And I had an absolutely brilliant English teacher called Mr. Henderson at North Berwick High School. And, uh, and he just mentioned in passing one day um, that Shakespeare had a son called Hamnet who died when he was 11. And that he went on several years later to write the play Hamlet. Um, and it just, I don't know, it just always really struck me, this odd symmetry of the almost, almost the same names, but not quite the same. Um, and, you know, it just, I mean, Shakespeare obviously is a man, you know, he's, it, there's a strange imbalance about him because we have an enormous, enormous wealth of his work, you know, his output, his plays and his poetry. But on the other hand, actually, very little is known about him and his biography. You know, the absolute concrete details in his life are really scant. You know, there are these huge longers and gaps in his story that scholars have puzzled about and researched for years. Um, but it always, always seemed to me that, you know, calling arguably your best play after your dead son is an enormously significant act. You know, it's telling us a huge amount. It's speaking volumes to us as an audience and as readers. And I have always felt that the boy, Hamnet, has never been given his due. He's never really been acknowledged as being this incredible and crucial contribution his unfortunately very early death has made to us. Can we hear a little bit from the book? Yes, certainly. Um, so this is from quite near the beginning uh, and Hamnet, uh, his twin sister Judith, has fallen ill and he's running around the house trying to find someone to help his sister. The room is filled with gloom, coverings pulled over most of the windows. His grandfather is standing with his back towards him in a crouched position, fumbling with something, papers, a cloth bag, counters of some sort. Hamlet gives a polite cough. His grandfather wheels around, his face wild, furious, his arm flailing through the air as if warding off an assailant. Who's there? He cries. It's me, Hamlet. His grandfather sits down with a thud. You scare the wits out of me, boy, he cries. Whatever do you mean, creeping about like that? I'm sorry, Hamlet says. I was calling and calling, but no one answered. Judith is, un is unwell and they've gone out. His grandfather speaks over him with a curt flick of his wrist. What do you want with all those women anyway? He seizes the neck of a pitcher and aims it towards his cup. The liquid, ale, Hamlet thinks, slops out precipitously, some into the cup and some onto the papers on the table, causing his grandfather to curse then dab at them with his sleeve. For the first time, it occurs to Hamnet that his grandfather might be drunk. 
Do you know where they've gone? Hamlet asks. Eh? His grandfather says, still mopping his papers. His anger at their spoiling seems to unsheath itself and stretch out from him like a rapier. Hamlet can feel the tip of it wander about the room, seeking an opponent. Don't stand there gulping, his grandfather hisses. Help me. Hamlet shuffles forward a step, then another. He is wary, his father's words circling in his mind. Stay away from your grandfather when he is in one of his black humours. Be sure to stand clear of him. Stay well back, do you hear? Swear to me, his father had said. Swear it. I need to know you'll be safe when I'm not here to see to it. Hamlet believes he is keeping his word. He is well back. He is at the other side of the fireplace. His grandfather couldn't reach him here, even if he tried. His grandfather is draining his cup with one hand and shaking the drops off a sheet of paper with the other. Take this, he orders, holding out the page. Hamlet bends forward, not moving his feet, and takes it with the very tips of his fingers. His grandfather's eyes are slitted, watchful. His tongue pokes out of the side of his mouth. He sits in his chair, hunched, an old, sad toad on a stone. And this, his grandfather holds out another paper. Hamlet bends forward in the same way, keeping the necessary distance. He thinks of his father, how he would be proud of him, how he would be pleased. Quick as a fox, his grandfather makes a lunge. Everything happens so fast that afterwards, Hamlet won't be sure in what sequence it all occurred. The page swings to the floor between them. His grandfather's hand seizes him by the wrist, then the elbow, hauling him forwards into the gap, the necessary space his father had told him to observe. And his other hand, which still holds the cup, is coming up fast. Hamlet is aware of streaks in his vision, red, orange, the colours of fire streaming in from the corner of his eye before he feels the pain. It is a sharp, clubbed, jabbing pain. The rim of the cup has struck him just below the eyebrow. That'll teach you, his grandfather is saying, in a calm voice, to creep up on people. Thanks. Thank you very much indeed. It must be quite strange. You and I were supposed to be having this conversation at the <laughs> wonderful Main Street Trading in St Boswell's mm -hmm. before the lockdown. Yes. Of the, was it March? I can't remember. It was March yeah. uh, before the coronavirus. Just uh, aside from the book, how have you coped during the lockdown? Because in your previous book, I Am, I Am, I Am, mm. you write about the fact that you have to take one of your children to hospital on a fairly regular basis. Mm. And that must have been fairly difficult at a time when we all know that the NHS was so stretched. Mm. Absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, I think What's always important, I think, is to hang on to your, you know, the things that are fortunate in your life. And we've been really lucky in that, touch wood, none of us have been ill so far during lockdown. And also we have a garden, <laughs> which I think any family with young children during lockdown will know the value of that. So actually, you know, and it's funny, you know, one of the really fortunate things I think about lockdown is that uh, my teenage son has been spending a lot of time at home. He probably wouldn't <laughs> list that as fortunate. <laughs> <laughs> to me you know you have to count your blessings in these situations but certainly I mean it's you know it is it's been hugely challenging for everybody in, in myriad ways I mean one of the ways that I've found hardest I think although I mean it's great having my kids at home obviously I love that but it's just finding space and time you know to try and write or to try and work and that's been <laughs> that's been a little bit short you know having three kids there, there was actually one day when I was so desperate um, 
my husband was actually homeschooling the kids that day and I, I just kept being interrupted constantly, constantly, on and on. People kept coming in saying, I need a jam jar, I need, I need a red pencil, I need blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I was so desperate, I actually went and <laughs> hid myself with my laptop in my youngest child's Wendy house. <laughs> so it's about that big and I, I, there's no standing room that I crouched in there and did some typing. And it was, it was really effective. No one found me for about two hours apart from the cat, but he didn't bother me. But it must have been rather strange in that a crucial point of Hamnet mm. is about how people are coping with the pestilence, mm. the plague. And obviously you could never have foreseen that we'd no. be living no. what the characters have to live through. Has that changed your, your own approach to the book when you look back on it, do you think? It has. I mean, you know, as you say, it's not something I could have foreseen, but there is halfway through the book, there's a chapter... Um, we'll come to that. <laughs> ..which traces, you know, traces the path of the disease or infection all the way to Warwickshire. Um, and obviously, you know, when I wrote that, whenever it was, two years ago or something, it was, it was just about, you know, research, really and you know putting a bit of imagination into the research and you know so I got all these maps of Elizabethan trade routes and you know you could trace how the disease you know how this bacteria came all the way through and it's in you know so to create that chapter it was just I do remember sitting in my you know my centrally heated house thinking oh I wonder what it's like you know <laughs> being experiencing a pandemic um so in a sort you know it's funny I've heard other other writers who've written, you know, what you call historical novels, whatever that means, really. But, and I've heard them say, you know, I've, I feel that these people are just the same as us. And I, I didn't feel that at all when I was writing Hamlet. I felt they were, I mean, in some ways, obviously, they're very similar, but in some ways, they're light years away from my experience and my life. Um, but the odd thing is that since, you know, because this book came out on the 31st of March, <laughs> it was, it was, you know, I mean, there was a point, I, 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 you know, it's funny, I was looking back in my diary and at the beginning of March, it really seemed that I was going to go on book tour and come to St. Paul's Wilson and talk to you. And then gradually as the months sort of, well, it just obviously it became less and less plausible that it was going to happen. So, but, you know, looking back at it now, it, it seems, you know, I feel in a sense closer to my characters actually, because I mean, obviously, you know, the current um, crisis that we're going through is, is nothing compared to what they went through with what we now call the plague. Um, you know, the numbers just <laughs> are incomparable, you know, uh, and it was just an absolute constant threat. And, you know, the, the swathes that cut through populations and continents and the whole world is, is astonishing. So it's nothing like what we're experiencing now. But in a way, it, it, there, is, there is a parallel and it does. I do in a way feel I understand them better now, <laughs> actually. <laughs> or I feel more, yeah, more compassion perhaps. Interesting when you mentioned there about um, whether or not you feel you can identify with characters mm. in the past. There's that wonderful quote at the beginning of Hartley's go-between about the past being another mm. country. They do things differently there. How did you manage to convey a sense of the complete difference of these Elizabethan characters? Well, I think, you know, in terms of writing, I mean, there wasn't any point where I sat down and said to myself, you know, I'm going to write a historical capital H novel, capital N. I think I would have got, I don't know, too much vertigo in a way. In a way, I wanted to approach it as I would any novel, really. But obviously, you know, writing about uh, the late 16th century, you are going to need to know an awful lot of things <laughs> that actually you don't know. So, there is, you know, and, you know, there's no, there's no shortage of books about Shakespeare. You could spend 
the rest of your life reading about him if you want to. Plenty of people do. Um, so there's so much out there. So, so quite a lot of my research for it was library-based in a sense. Um, but also, you know, I wanted to get a kind of sense, particularly, um, particularly with the characters of the women actually in the story, Hamlet's mother. You know, the lives of women then was, as I was saying, you know, so different from my experience. So I actually, I used a quite a bit of physical research for that. I, I learned how to fly a kestrel and I went down to Scottish borders to learn how to, to, to from a falconer. So that was, that's probably the most fun thing actually that I've ever done in, in the name of work. Uh, I also planted from seed an Elizabethan medicinal physic garden, which is something that all households would have had in those days to try and treat minor and also major ailments. Um, and I went mudlarking along the Thames. That was the other thing I did, which also, you know, really hard work, tough a tough few days um, so I found yeah I went I went deliberately targeting Tudor dumps near Henry VIII and Elizabeth the first palace and I found all kinds of things particularly lots of tiny little brass pins that were used for their hair and their clothes and their ruffs um, and also I found this incredible prismatic ship's glass which is about the size of a sort of brick that was used to refract light into the dark holds of um, merchant ships that's astonishing. Yeah, I have it. It's one of my most treasured things. You mentioned there about particularly the lives of women. Mm. And one thing that this book does, which ties it in with your previous work, mm. is that really the central character isn't Hamlet. Mm. It's Hamlet's mother. And you change the name slightly from Anne Hathaway to Agnes. And she's somebody who has a kind of feminist approach, although it's not a word that she would ever use. She knows about how to cure things. Yeah. She knows the old stories. Can you talk about how you lensed female experience through Agnes Hathaway? Yes, I mean, it's funny. When I originally planned this book, because it is a book I wanted to write for a, a long time, um, and actually I, I did have a couple of attempts and I ended up swerving away, and I think I've written three other books instead of... <laughs> It's a kind of distraction <laughs> instead of writing this one. Um, but, you know, so I originally conceived it that it would be about fathers and sons as, a, you know, as the players and also about ghosts and haunting. But I, actually what happened in the, when I was actually sitting, I really sat myself down and said, you've got to either write it or forget about it. Um, that, that I started researching it and I became really, I don't know, enraged actually is the only word about how... Hamlet's mother, Mrs. Shakespeare, whatever you want to call her, um, is treated actually by history, by scholars, by um, biographers, screenwriters, other novelists. You know, there's, there's such a sort of myth surrounding her and it's all filled with hate. <laughs> and I have no idea why. That's true. Um, and actually I should say that I, I didn't change her name. What I did was <laughs> give a name back to her because one of the things I, uh, read while I was um, researching her was her father's will. So a year before she and William got married, her father, Richard Hathaway, died and he left her a very generous dowry. But in the will, he named her as my daughter Agnes, which would have been pronounced then as Annis or Agnes. <clears throat> so I was, it was a kind of, it was one of those sort of uh, lightning fork moments where I thought, well, if, surely if anyone, and have we been calling her by the wrong name for almost 500 years, you know, surely if anyone knows her real name, it's going to be her dad, you'd think. So it was a kind of gift in a sense, because what I wanted readers to do 
was to forget everything they think they know about her. You know, all the kind of idea that she's this peasant strumpet who trapped him into marriage, that she was a much older woman. I mean, she was, and obviously, you know, they were, she was 26, she was 18 when they got married, and yes, she was three months pregnant, but actually so were, I think, a third of brides who went to the altar in Stratford in those days. Um, but just, the, I don't know what it is. I don't know why there is this perpetual desire among, you know, historians and scholars and other writers to give Shakespeare a retrospective divorce. <laughs> I don't know whether it's just misogyny or whether it's, you know, we, we desire our, our writers or our artists to be footloose and fancy free. And, you know, I mean, obviously, yes, he spent a lot of time in London, so they were apart during a lot of their marriage, but that doesn't mean that he didn't love her. You know, I mean, at the end of his career, he chose to go back to Stratford when he retired from the stage. He went back to Stratford to spend it with her. You know, pretty much every penny he earned, and he, you know, he was a very good businessman as well as being a Indeed. pretty good playwright. Um, but he sent it all back to Stratford. You know, he lived in really modest lodgings in London, and he bought, you know, it's an enormous mansion of a house for his wife and daughters a year after Hamlet died. And, you know, he he owned fields and uh, cottages, and he, you know, he was a quite a well-known landlord, I think, in Stratford. So th there was nothing that I found that made me think. Yes, he regretted his marriage, you know. Yes, he hated it. So I wanted, to, I wanted to present the idea that their marriage perhaps was one of love and of kind of mutual respect and mutual kind of creativity. You know, one of the things that, that obviously intrigues me, and I'm, I know I'm not alone in this, <laughs> is, uh, is the kind of reach and range of Shakespeare's metaphors. And so there were obviously through Hamlet, the play, there's, the, there's a great deal of herbology with great, you know, great deal of well, knowledge of herbology. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And also he uses a lot of metaphors with Hawking. So I decided to give both those areas of expertise to his wife, to Agnes, um, because I wanted her, there to be a kind of idea of an exchange between them. It's such a, a strange and difficult area. When I was thinking about the book, uh, Travelling Here Today, I started thinking about mothers in Shakespeare. And mm. Hamlet is a play with a very significant role for a mother. And then I started thinking, well, where are the other significant mothers in Shakespeare? I think there's, there's Coriolanus' mother mm -hmm. in that, but you know, Prospero never mentions Miranda's mother, mm. Lear's wife is never mentioned. Mm. There is a strange obfuscation that the mother figure is really not there. I mean, obviously mm. you've got some mothers in the history plays, yes, but they are almost always rather nasty pieces of work, mm. the she-wolf of France and such like. I mean, there must be something in this, I don't know, psychological withdrawal from depicting mothers. Perhaps, I mean, I think, I don't know, one of the things that I was very circumspect actually about when I was approaching the novel is reading too much of the plays <laughs> into the novel, having this kind of osmotic, um, interchange you know because I think you have to be you have to be careful you're also, also kind of respectful <laughs> I think in a way I didn't want to um, write the kind of book which you know every couple of pages was suggesting this is where he got this idea from <laughs> this is where he got this from because you know in a sense the plays you know his plays are untouchable really um, but also I think at the, at the back of my mind always I had to try and always remind myself that these, these were real people, especially with the children as well. You know, the fact is 
that there was a real Hamlet Shakespeare and he did die. And in fact, he was buried on the 11th of August, what would have been four days ago, you know, almost 500 years ago. Um, and you always have to remember that. I think when you're writing fiction, creating fiction about real people, you have to tread carefully and you have to always remember and respect that they were real, even though there's nobody around who knew them. And of course, you know, sadly, there are no direct descendants of Shakespeare. Um, Judith had three boys, all of whom died. Um, Susanna had a daughter who died childless. So Shakespeare doesn't have any direct descendants. But even still, you've got to remember that somewhere in the graveyard in Stratford, there is a grave of that little boy. And you have to be respectful about that, I think. And both Judith and Susanna signed our legal documents with a mark. So the greatest uh, creator of plays in English, one of the greatest wordsmiths in English, didn't allow his daughters to learn to read and write. I always thought, I've seen examples of Susanna's signature. The thing that interests me about Judith's signature is it's a J upside down, backwards and upside down. So I wonder whether she had dyslexia. Huh, that's a very interesting idea. <laughs> but in terms of the man himself, one thing which is incredibly clever and extremely elegant about the book is the name William Shakespeare never occurs. He's always something else. Mm. What was the strategy about keeping him off the centre of the stage? Well, it wasn't, I don't know, it was a kind of, <laughs> I like the way you use strategy as if I, <laughs> as if I was that organised, when I really wasn't. Um, it was just something that I realised was impossible quite early on when I was writing the book. So the name, obviously I never use the name William, and I don't actually, the name Shakespeare doesn't appear no. in any of the novels at all. I mean, <laughs> partly because, you know, you cannot, I found anyway that I couldn't sit at my desk and write a sentence like <laughs> William Shakespeare came down to breakfast and had porridge. You know, it just, <laughs> I just, you just instantly feel like an Egypt and you're kind of yanked out of the, um, you yanked out of the book. And I thought, well, if I can't, if I can't write it, you know, how can I expect anyone to read it with a straight face? I mean, you just, you can't, <laughs> you just can't. And you know, and then you think, well, should I call him William? Which seems presumptuous and will, you know, just like, I can't, I can't address him as that. Billy boy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, all of it seems so wrong. And I suppose also I was very intrigued <coughs> by the idea, you know, because the book, I mean, it opens, of course, when Hamlet is 11 and you know he doesn't have long to live, but there's a kind of flashback to when uh, William and, Agnes get married, so he's 18 at that point. And so I suppose I was interested in a way um, in thinking about Shakespeare before he was Shakespeare, you know, um, before he's the man we all, man we all have a relationship with in our own heads. Um, you know, because I do wonder how, how he was seen in Stratford. You know, I mean, he must have been extraordinary, even at that age, even at 18. You know, he must have stuck out like a sore thumb, really. I mean, what, did his, what would it have been like being his teacher at grammar school, <laughs> you know, teaching him Greek or rhetoric or, you know, I mean, he must, the people must have realised that he was incredibly unusual. I mean, it's not as if he's, you know, it's not only is he the greatest writer who's ever lived, it's just, it's no one has even, no one's even come close. You know, he changed the way people think about themselves and he continues to change the way we think about ourselves and others with every sort of new interpretation of his plays. And it, it's not just in terms of the biographical rendition of Shakespeare. You have the whole problem about what you do about the language. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, one thing which is very admirable about the book is there's no attempt at pastiche. There's no attempt to, uh, <laughs> to try and write as Shakespeare. Yes. 
But there are some things, when I reviewed it, I pointed out, you use a lot of un-words, mm. which is a very distinctive Shakespearean formulation. So how did you work through what language this book was going to have to use? Well, I knew that um, I had a kind of, it was almost a bit like a sort of line in the sand and it was the prithy line. I knew that I was never going to use the word <laughs> prithy or sirrah. <laughs> but it was just never. Prithy or privy? <laughs> prithy. Prithy. I don't know, maybe I might use the word privy, I can't remember, but prithy. No, definitely not. And no one was going to say sirrah or anything. <laughs> just, you know, you can't, I mean, it just imagine how horrific it would be <laughs> to write that kind of dialogue. Just, yeah, horrible. So that was, that was never going to happen. That was always my intention, <laughs> never my intention in writing any sort of cod. And also, you know, the idea that you'd, I don't know, write some kind of <laughs> Shakespearean pastiche. I mean, who do I think I am, really? So, no, that was never going to happen. But, um, I mean, what I did try and do was concentrate on not so much vocabulary, but also just cadence, um, as yes. you're saying, with the unwords, which you very cleverly spotted. Um, so I did read a lot of his play. I went back and reread a lot of them just to get the kind of the rhythms and also the inversions and, you know, because... It is so different from the way we speak. Um, so I did try it, but obviously, you know, you have to tread. Again, you've got to tread quite carefully because you don't want to sound like, and also like an Egypt. But the thing that I really, I really tried to do um, was to not use any word um, that didn't have the same meaning then. So when I went through, <laughs> when I went through the final drafts, I had the OED next to me, the Oxford English Dictionary, and I was trying to check words that felt anachronistic. So, for example, my editor picked me up on this. There was one, there's a scene where he's talking to the Latin tutor, I'm going to call him, was talking to his sister, and she, I described her pleating her dress into concertina folds. And my editor wrote in the margin, concertinas weren't invented until the 18th century. So that was one. And then and I think in the final time I was going through the manuscript I described something as descending into a shambles meaning chaos and I thought I should probably just check that and I discovered that in the 16th century shambles meant to dice up a carcass which of course was you know the, mm -hmm. the meaning altered um, so that had to go and I had to think about something else instead so I, I tried to do that that was the only that was the only uh, sort of dispensation <laughs> I allowed myself. It's strange it's, it's the same sort of tactic that Anthony Burgess had in his novel about Shakespeare uh, where he only used words that Shakespeare used. Yes. With right. one exception. Oh, really? What was it? I'm not going to tell you. Oh, come on. <laughs> Figure it out yourself. Spill the beans. No, no. <laughs> Let's talk about the scene where we discover the journey of the plague. I think all your novels have a scene which I think of as the cadenza scene, which is kind of just this exuberant, brilliant, fantastical way of looking at things and thinking about the point where time goes backwards in The Hand That First Held Mine, um, all of them have a kind of point of bravura. Mm -hmm. And I think in Hamlet it's very much that scene where you take the root of one particular flea going through everything from Venetian glass to mm -hmm. monkeys to Moorish sailors do you think of them as being kind of the bit where you think, okay, foot off the brake now? <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, it's hard, to, it's hard to kind of pinpoint, but I think, I just remember feeling when I 
when I was coming up to the sort of maybe a third of the way through the first draft, I remember thinking, having this sort of overwhelming sense that the book needed to be thrown open wide at some point. I think I don't, also I wonder now whether I was slightly delaying the point at which I was going to have to kill Hamlet. <laughs> kill Hamlet, exactly. I did employ quite a lot of uh, delaying <laughs> tactics to do that, I have to admit. So it's quite possible that I wrote that chapter um, off one. And it did, I mean, it was the chapter that I worried most actually about when I handed the, the complete manuscript to my editor. I had a horrible feeling that it was going to come back with <laughs> a massive red line through it. But, uh, but she, you know, she liked it, luckily, <laughs> luckily. Um, but it was, no, I think I just felt that the book needed at that point, you know, because it, it all happens in, you know, obviously a in quite a small, small market town, yes. a small rural town in, in Warwickshire. And a lot of the book happens in one house. I mean, there's also, you know, the Hathaway farm, but I just it felt to me that it was a bit too hermetic. Claustrophobic? Maybe claustrophobic, I mean, yeah, hermetic. And I wanted the book to be, I wanted there to be a more kind of global perspective on it, I think to kind of say this wasn't, you know, yes, this disease is coming, you know, and this was a disease that every single Elizabethan person would have feared like no other, you know, and it would have been a constant fear and everybody would have known its signs and its symptoms and they would have known exactly what would have happened if they had a case in their house that a watchman would have been stationed outside for 40 days. No one would have been allowed in or out. And if it spread to the town, um, the whole town would have been shut down. You know, there's, a, there's an entry in the parish register in Stratford-upon-Avon three months after a certain William Shakespeare was born. And it's just three words in Latin, hic incipit pestis, here begins plague. Begins and then there's just this horrible roster, 300 people, 300 odd people dying in this very small town. A family of four died two doors down in Henley Street to where the Shakespeare's were living. You think you just imagine how Mary Shakespeare's mother was feeling at that during that summer. You know she'd already lost two daughters and she had this three-month-old baby, and Pete, her neighbours around her were dying. The whole town was filled with plague. I mean, just thinking about it makes me have <laughs> slight palpitations. But luckily for her and us, he he survived. But it was so. I suppose I wanted to. At that point, I remember feeling I wanted to impart the sort of magnitude of the scale of these horrendous pandemics that swept through the population of the world. But towards the end of the book, it really concertinas <laughs> up no, into... you can't say that. <laughs> when we actually get the production of Hamlet, hmm. and we get through Agnes's eyes what the mother thinks about the play, hmm. That must be pretty difficult to write, to find a kind of new way into a play that we all think we know so well. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't. I always knew, it's funny, because I always find endings a little bit tricky, and I always think endings often change as you write the book. Sometimes they alter, and, um, you know, you end up, instead of going from A to B, you end up going to C to D instead. But I always knew that the book would end with the play, because... It has to, doesn't it? <laughs> and I think one of the questions I'd always had, even before I started writing the book, was, you know, I remember when I was 16 in a very cold classroom <laughs> in North Berwick, looking down, as my teacher said, that he had a son called Hamnet, and looking down at my copy and just putting my finger over the L and thinking, it's the same name. And I, you know, I've always wondered, what did, what did his mother think about that? 
I don't know if I would have been thrilled, actually, if my husband wrote a play with the name of my dead child. I don't know. I mean, maybe she was fine about it, but it, it's a question that's always slightly haunted me. It is an extremely strange thing that the two plays that we have the biggest divergences between quarto and folio versions mm. are Lear, about daughters, mm. and Hamlet. And you know, we've got Hamlet in three versions. Mm -hmm. And it does seem that because it was uh, basically kind of bootleg versions were out there, mm. the Q1, Felt then we've got the Q2, Mm. Then we've got the, the folio, the foul papers. It's always struck me that it seems that the only convincing thing is that when Shakespeare does go back and he isn't writing, he's revising Hamlet. He's going back to his two most famous plays mm. and still working over it and still worrying over it. And I think the thing which really touched me most in the book is when Agnes realises he is deeply hurt by what mm. has happened. No, this isn't just using a name. Mm -hmm. I thought that was extremely skillfully done. Is there any a part of Shakespeare's life you would like to write about? I think something that intrigues me a lot about him, uh, you know, there are so many unanswered questions about him, but one of the questions I would have is that why, why didn't he preserve his work for posterity? Indeed, you Ben know, Johnson did. Ben Johnson did and Christopher Marlowe did. They made sure before they, you know, as they retired, before they died, that their works were there and they were, had these beautiful, pristine, lovely copies that they'd gone through. Shakespeare did not. You know, the only reason we have those quartos is because of his friends, his colleagues, Hemmings and Condell, who collected everything up and put them together and worked tirelessly, you know, on this first folio. But he didn't. And, you know, and it wasn't as if, I mean, he retired. He had quite a long time between retirement and his deaths um so why didn't he and i you know so many questions i think well did he not know did he not know his value did he not realize what he had created which i find fascinating it certainly is can we hear another little bit from yeah sure Albert? so this is where we first see agnes and where the latin tutor first sees agnes on a morning in early spring a Latin tutor is standing at the window in Hewland's farm, absently tugging on the hoop through his left ear. He is watching the trees. The boys are behind him. They are conjugating verbs, temporarily unheard by the tutor, who is intent on the startling contrast between the sharply blue spring sky and the new leaf green of the forest. The colours seem to fight, vying for supremacy, vibrancy, the green versus the blue, one against the other. The children's Latin verbs wash over him, through him, like the wind. He is just about to turn and face his pupils when he sees from the trees a figure emerge. For a moment, the tutor believes it to be a young man. He is wearing a cap, a leather jerkin, gauntlets. He moves out of the trees with a brand of masculine insouciance or entitlement, covering the ground with booted strides. There is some kind of bird on his outstretched fist chestnut brown with a creamy chest, its wings spotted with black. It sits hunched, subdued, its body swaying with the movement of its companion, its familiar. The tutor is imagining this person, this hawk-taming youth, to be some kind of factotum to the farm, or a relative to the family, a visiting cousin perhaps. Then he registers the long plait hanging over the shoulder, reaching past the waist, the jerkin laced, laced tight around a form that curves suspiciously inwards. 
He sees the skirts, which had been bunched up, now hastily being dragged down around the stockings. He sees a pale, oval face under the cap, an arched brow. He moves closer to the glass, leaning on the sill, and watches as the woman moves from the left to the right of the window frame, a bird riding on her fist, her skirt swishing around her boots. Then she enters the farmyard, moves through the chickens and geese, around the side of the house, and is gone. He straightens, his frown vanished, a smile forming <clears throat> under his scant beard. Behind him, the room has fallen silent. He recalls himself, the lesson, the boys, the verb conjugation. He turns. He arches his fingers together as he imagines a tutor ought to do, as his own masters did at school not so long ago. Excellent, he says to them. They look towards him, plants turning to the sun. What is the name, he asks, of that serving girl, the one with the bird? Excellent. <clears throat> I'm going to move on and actually take some questions from the audience. Now, this is the first year we've had to do it in this manner, so you will forgive me if this is slightly clunkier than we would expect. Uh, don't stick your hand up. I'm getting them through on this device. Some kind of witchcraft in this. <laughs> so, question from Judy. How did you know how to address grief and loss? Is this based somewhat upon your own life experiences? And of course, your previous book was about mm. 17 brushes with death. That's true. That was one of the books I wrote <coughs> while I was trying not to write Hamlet. Um, I mean, I think what I would say is that, you know, I think you don't have to love somebody without... <coughs> you can't not have a sense of what it would be like to lose them. You know, I think quite a large part or component of love is fear of loss. You know, the, the magnitude that you know the, how much grief. You know, I think, in a sense, you know, if you turned love inside out, like a glove, you know, the inverse would be how much you would fear to lose them. So it isn't really a huge stretch of the imagination. Although that said, one of the reasons I took so long to get to this book was a kind of weird superstition. I mean, I'm not really a superstitious person, but I did have a very visceral superstition um, that I couldn't write this book until my own son, because I have a son and two daughters, oh. was past the age of 11. Not that, there, not that there was a huge risk of him contracting the Black Death, but I just, it was fun I couldn't do it because I knew that to write it, I was going to have to put myself inside the skin of a woman who sits oh. at the bedside of a, her son and is forced to watch him die, is unable to save him, and then she has to lay him out for burial. And I, on one level, I could not write that until my own son was past it. He's now a six foot 17 year old, so. <laughs> He's okay. Hopefully, he's safe from the Black Death. Touch wood again. Um, so yeah, there is. You know, it was. I mean, in a sense, those scenes I think were the hardest things. Probably the hardest things I've ever written because, you know, every parent's most abject fear is to lose your child. So I didn't. It wasn't undertaken lightly. Certainly, when I spoke to my mum, who read it and loved it. I asked her just a very simple question, what, what do you remember most? And she said, the funeral. Mm. It has to be the funeral. So another question from Emma D. Uh, how did you use your research to help you write the novel? How do you know what to include and what to leave out? Well, I think, I mean, it's funny, you know, I think the thing about research is 
especially with a book like this, which obviously, you know, you have to, there's an awful lot you have to know in order to feel confident enough even to write about a house you know, yeah. in the 16th century. I mean, in one way, it was incredibly lucky that, you know, you can go to Stratford and buy a ticket and you can walk around the house where this all happened, you know, where my book happens and where Shakespeare was born. You can walk into the room where Shakespeare was born. You can stand in the dining room where he ate all his meals. I mean, it is astonishing. I would sort of urge anyone um, with even the slightest interest in literature to go to Stratford as soon as, as soon as you can and do it, because it is an astonishing experience to go there. I mean, it seems amazing that it survived, you know, the half century in between. Um, so that was, that was, of course, very useful. I mean, the thing about research is, I think, especially with, you know, I think you have to kind of write the kind of novels that you yourself would like to read in a way. And I, particularly novels which are set in the past, <clears throat> I find the ones that are where their history very likely are the ones I enjoy the most. I don't really like <laughs> turning a page and receiving, <coughs> excuse me, um, a kind of PhD in what Bakelite is and where, where it comes from. I find that really annoying and distracting. So I, I wanted it to, um, any kind of research, I mean, you know, you have to know so much, but actually you need to chuck out probably 90% of it. I think 90% is a, an underestimation because I mean, you, probably, could, yes. you could go through all the Shakespeare plays and look for every single yeah. reference to plagues you and could. sons. Mm -hmm. And you could bring in the winter's tale and the lost child Mamilius in that. Yeah. But you know, you really have to be very careful that you're not what they call in science fiction the info dump. <laughs> That's a very good term. I'm yes. gonna borrow that. <laughs> um this is a question from Francis G. I feel like Humphrey Littleton doing this. <laughs> Suits you. Why did you include the historical note at the beginning of the novel? I listened on audiobook where it is omitted, and when I got to the chapter of Hamnet swapping places, I was thoroughly surprised and heartbroken. I feel if I had known the outcome, I would have read the preceding chapters differently. Why did I do that? Gosh, I can't remember now. Um, I think, you know, I think what it was actually, in, in the sort of years running up to the point where I was getting ready to write this book, I asked quite a lot of my friends and acquaintances uh, if they knew what Shakespeare's kids were called. Oh. I didn't say their children. Because I think I was trying to work out how, how known Hamnet is, you know, because I feel, you know, for me, I, I was so fueled in the writing of this book by, I feel he's been underestimated and overlooked too much by history. And, I, and because I was told about him when I was, whatever I was, 16, it was hard for me to gauge how well known he is as a person mm. and actually <laughs> all of my friends you know some of whom like me studied <clears throat> literature at university they didn't know and I said to them well you know Shakespeare had a son called Hamnet and actually two or three of them said to me you can't make that up <laughs> and I said no I haven't I promise you I haven't and they said no you can't you can't make up a novel and just you know call his son. And I said I promise you I've seen the Paris records it's there you know anyone can read it it's true his son was called Hamlet so in a sense I wanted people to understand that, it, that he was real I mean obviously it's a novel and I made it all you know there are kind of longers in the story which I have filled with my own fiction but I wanted I suppose I wanted readers to know straight away that these are the facts, you know, and that's what I try to do with the book. You know, the facts are very scant about all of them, but 
I tried to use whatever facts are accessible there and I tried not to change anything <coughs> where possible. Well, a lovely question here from Ro. Um, the novel had such a profound impact on me that I wonder how you felt when you had finished it. <laughs> well, I'll just say to you that I usually, when I finish a book, I pack up all the different drafts and notes into a box and anything that's on my pinboard pretty soon afterwards and I label it with the book and I put it in the basement. Um, with Hamnet, it took me a year to do really? that. Yeah, couldn't do it, I couldn't take them down, couldn't take the photos down, couldn't take my, I had a, um, a kestrel feather up on my, um, and I had lots of hagstones, I had lots of kind of, I don't know, talismans for this book, all the things that I found when I was mudlarking. And I, I couldn't get rid of them. I mean, I haven't got rid of them. They're all, some of them are packed away and some of them are still up, but no, it was- Not that you're superstitious. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I'm superstitious, no, exactly. So no, it was hard actually. It was hard to let them go. And how about moving on to a new project? Was that hard given how difficult it was to- Well, it's funny. I couldn't, I found I couldn't settle to a new one for a while. And actually I did start, which I've done before actually. I started two, <laughs> I started two books. I have two desks in my study for this purpose and I wrote one book on one and then the next week I would, write, I would try just to kind of see which one caught fire actually in a way. I have done that before when I can't quite decide <laughs> but actually what happened was um, that these ones have been carefully nurtured for years but like this one had and I finally thought I'll give them a go. <laughs> one day I just had an idea and I came in and I thought right no forget these they got binned and I've started on a new one so once I got once I found the right idea then I was okay. Here's a bit of a difficult one it from Katie B. It seems likely Shakespeare may have come to know the old play Amleth before mm. the date of Hamnet's birth. Yeah. So do you think he named his son with a deliberate resonance to the trickster hero of the old play and that his fascination with the character developed over the following 10 plus years? It's possible, but with Shakespeare you never quite know. I mean, yes, I think there is, a, there is as she's right, there is a play called Amleth which has a similar plot, yes. I believe. Yes, and there is an Amleth mentioned in some Danish histories. Yes, so I think there was so. a Prince Amleth, I believe. Um, what I do know is that Hamnet and Judith were called after their godparents, who are Hamnet and Judith Sadler, who were the baker. The baker's wife is mentioned in the novel a few times uh -huh. as Agnes's friend. Um, so I believe he, they were called after the couple, the bakers, who were very friendly, obviously, with William and Anne Agnes. But whether or not, I mean, yeah, it'd be interesting to know. It's not known at what point, of course, Shakespeare left Stratford to go to London. I mean, there are... Exactly. Nobody quite, and people, you know, scholars refer to it as the lost years. No one knows why he went or <laughs> for what reason or when at some point. But certainly he must have been in Stratford to father the twins. <laughs> but after then, then well, he pops up. Well, necessarily. <laughs> well, one would hope. <laughs> My mother was a piece of virtue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, get thee to an honorary. Uh, but then, you know, he pops up again several years in London, so, yeah, it's impossible. I mean, it's an interesting question, but I don't know. It is. When, it's, like it's, many other things with him, it's, it's impossible to say. It's grammaticus <coughs> is the historian that has Amleth in it. But there's been critical talk about the Ur-Hamlet, the play beforehand for yeah. years, and people going on about the Spanish tragedy by Kidd mm -hmm. and what it might have been. So, I mean, it is, as you say, it's... Uh, it's a bit of a, a rabbit hole you can go down for a very long time. You certainly can. There are many of those with Shakespeare, actually. Yeah. Um, Hamnet is obviously a catchier name. This is from Edward R. for the novel. But should it not really have been called Agnes? After all, it is mainly about her. 
That's possible. I suppose I could have called it that. But to me, the, the kind of driving force behind the book was to give voice and significance to the boy. You know, I feel he's been... I mean, like her, I suppose they both were. Actually. I think her daughters as well, you know, Susanna and Judith were... They've all been very much in the background, you know. But, I mean, there's a very good reason, of course, why all biographies centre on Shakespeare and his <laughs> career in London. But it's always felt to me as though the... I mean, the biggest, you know, act, the biggest drama or biggest tragedy of Shakespeare's life happened off stage, and that was oh. the death of his son in Stratford. So I, you know, that's why I wanted to call the book this, because I feel... I feel he needs, he should be heard, this boy, his story should be heard. Not that we know it, of course. You know, he doesn't even have a gravestone. We don't even know, we know he's buried in the churchyard, but we don't know where. Um, so it was him I wanted to give significance to. And you do, and the way in which it binds together the play and the loss, I think is done yeah. with, with real grace. Um, Jane M is asking, did you feel intimidated by the idea of choosing Shakespeare as a subject for a novel? Yes. <laughs> quick answer. <laughs> Very quick answer. Yes, God, yes. Um, how could you not, really? I mean, <laughs> so, I mean, that's one of the reasons, you know, among the many reasons why it took me a while to write this book. No, certainly. I mean, actually, you know, another reason why I never use his name in the book is partly to forget, actually, that I'm writing about, about him. him. Yeah. You have to, in a sense. You've got to put that to one side. Um, when I you could get terrible vertigo writing yeah. about him. When I reviewed it, it struck me that there are very few novels about Shakespeare. There's mm -hmm. the Anthony Burgess. Yes. Uh, which I think is the only half-decent one. I mean, mm. plenty of novels about Kit Marlowe. Mm. And yes, that's no, true, actually. And the Elizabethan court in general. Mm. But it, it is something I think that people wince from, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yes, I can understand that. <laughs> it's a very interesting question here from Louise C. How common was the proper name Hamnet? I mean, there are Hamnet. It's not that common, but there are, from what I could tell from looking in the parish records, there are some, but not lots, if that is a very, <laughs> very unnumerical answer. <laughs> I mean, obviously, there was, you know, his friend, Hamnet Sadler, mm. who he's called after. Um, and I think I read in one book, I can't remember which one it was now, a biography saying that there were, there were quite a few, there were various Hamlets or Hamlets in the registers who were born as Hamlet and buried as Hamlet or the other way around or married mm. as one. It was just, you know, one of those instabilities of Elizabethan spelling that just happened and nobody turned a hair. Well, I mean, if you look at the number of ways in which the name Shakespeare yes. is spelt. And he himself spelt it, yes. you know, in a very different way, often with an X, which, yes. I mean, someone suggested that maybe actually we should be pronouncing it Shakespeare. So, Very yeah, possibly. Um, let's see. Uh, somebody is asking, Carolyn R is asking, what are you working on at the moment? Well, Feel you know, free to not answer the question. Not being a superstitious person, as we've established, I... <laughs> <laughs> I'm very reluctant to talk about things I haven't finished, but all I can say, actually, I can't really say very much. <laughs> all I can say is it's set in the past again. But of course, that's quite a big. It leaves quite a lot of open. It. Yes, there's <laughs> quite a lot of that. I know, sorry, Caroline, it's very unspecific. Nancy L is asking Are there herbal remedies that you will now use in your own life after all the research you've done? Well, actually, 
<laughs> I do sometimes, yeah. I mean, I was, um, I was quite interested in it before I started researching this book, but then I did, as I was saying, I did plant, and I'm not a very uh, horticultural type person at all, but I'm not much of a gardener, but I did um, create this garden actually as part of the research. Just because it was partly because, you know, you can, you can read as many books as you want that can describe, you know, how they used comfrey for aching joints, but until you actually plant the seeds and water them and nurture them, and then, you know, I went on a course, um, for herbal medicine course to find out how you actually physically take these plants and make them into medicine. Um, you don't really understand it. You can't really get into the, under the skin of somebody who does that. Um, so I did. But what I will say is my children are very resistant <laughs> to herbal remedies. Skeptical. They're all skeptics, all three of them. That's, that's curious. <laughs> um, uh, let me just find the... I can only imagine there would be great interest in the novel being adapted for film or TV, asks Gillian M. Is that a possibility? And how would you feel about this? I'm thinking of Michelle Farber's feeling distant but happy about the film of Under the Skin. Um, well, the rights have been sold, and I think they're currently with the BBC. I'm not sure what... I don't know what stage they're at. And, you know, these things are so very... I mean, you know, the kind of film adaptations are very... It's how long is a piece of string? You never know. Um, it, what, they did ask me if I wanted to write the script, but I, I really didn't actually. I'm Why quite, not? It's not, I think, because I, I've never really been that interested in adapting any of my novels. I think I've, I've written them the way I want them to be, and I'm quite happy to hand it over to a script expert to do what they will with it, I think. So. I suppose the BBC will still have all the props from doing Wolf Hall. So. <laughs> all the linen napkins. They can yes. use them again. <laughs> uh, Margaret Skiers asking, how much is known about Shakespeare's relationship with his own mother? Well, almost nothing, unfortunately. I mean, nobody, all we know is that she was called Mary Arden. Um, and he wrote about the Forest of Arden. That's about all we know, actually. I mean, it's, it's an interesting And the new question. Oxford Shakespeare includes Arden of Faversham as being one of the plays that I think is by Shakespeare now. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. I don't think it is, but... Yeah, um, we'll have to take a look. Yes. Yeah, unfortunately, I can't enlighten you at all um, about... I mean, no, nobody knows, unfortunately, and there's as no we, As we touched on earlier, mothers are a strange absence in Shakespeare. Yes, yeah. Um, do we even know yeah. how old he was when she died? Oh, of course not. I should know when she died. When did she die? I think she lived till quite an age. I can't remember yeah, that. My mind's that's... gone really blank. I know that Judith, Susanna and... Agnes all lived to an astonishing age. Judith yes. particularly was, I think she was in her 70, early 70s when she died. What really breaks my heart, actually, about the two sisters in particular who had such long lives, is that the point at which they were elderly women was the point at which there was a big resurgence or beginning to be a resurgence in interest in Shakespeare and people were starting to write very early biographies of him. But not one of them thought to no. go to Stratford and say to his, no. either of his two daughters, what was he like? <laughs> what did he do? What were his <laughs> interests? What did he... And you think about how much we could have had about him if someone had done that, someone had thought to do it, but nobody did. Yes. And I mean, it is very strange with the daughters that is, which one is it? Judith or Susanna who marries John Hall, the doctor? Susanna. Susanna. Yeah. Position. Because the, the late plays in particular have got a lot of doctors A lot of good doctors, them. yeah, they yes, have. Yes, a lot of good mm. doctors. And so there's a kind of parallel between uh, your version of Agnes 
being a herbalist mm -hmm. and the doctor that marries into the family. Yeah. You wonder if Anne Hathaway actually gave him some tips. <laughs> I wonder, I like to think so. I think uh, I'd like to finish with this, which is a comment from Anna T. But just get your response to it. Mm -hmm. I think this is very moving. She says, I can't move the book off my bedside table. As a mum who has lost a child, Hamlet has claimed a part of my heart. Thank you for writing this incredible book. Oh. Do you want to send a message to Anna? Just thank you very much, Anna. And I'm really sorry to hear about your loss. It's, it has touched a lot of people, this book. Um, and I think that not just because it's about the greatest living wordsmith in the English language, but because it is genuinely just about grief and parents and what it's like to lose a child. So I think on almost every level, intellectually and emotionally, it really succeeds. And it's been an absolute privilege to speak with you. Maggie, thank you very much indeed. And thank you all from wherever you are for being here with us this evening. Thank you. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you for listening. Find out more about the Edinburgh International Book Festival at edbookfest.co.uk and by following us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at edbookfest. You can hear more events by subscribing to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and you can also watch a selection of our events in full on our website and YouTube channel.